When I go to Buenos Aires, it's like, okay, how am I going to meet people? I'm, I go onto meetups, I go onto Facebook, but then, then the mediation of software is removed. Like the moment I'm like, I get to just play, and it's no longer just trying to use software to handle every single aspect of the interaction. Mm-hmm. I mean, how autistic is this that we're trying to banter, and all we can talk about is software optimization for hanging out with people in real it's, life? This is like, this is my kind of banter. Okay, welcome to the newest episode of The Network Age. I'm Vigil Ritson, and I'm here with my lovely and delicate co-hosts, uh, Tim Lukmiptev and Nilrun Mardux. Boys, how you, how you guys doing today? Doing amazing. Hey, hey, doing well. Yeah, glad, glad to have you virtually. Another great hang. And uh, Tim Luck, I think today we are interested in probing some of your ideas. I know we've been discussing behind the scenes what exactly happens in this network age system once we remove all of the annoying barriers to our productivity and liberty, tolbus, as we've been calling them. And I think you have some pretty interesting theories as to what comes next in this digital landscape. I guess, like, the first place to start, and you guys can then play off it a little bit or tell me what's interesting, is just this idea that we've evolved into this system right now that has a lot of different, um, almost what I call, like, fire breaks on productivity. So, like, if you're talking, we have, like, you know, banking and stuff very automated, but then there's all these places in it where a human will go into the loop, and it's it's, it's very hard to... Get anything done. Uh, get anything done efficiently, um, and then you know also just in software in general, nothing connects very well, and so you're constantly um, going like, how would I say this? Uh, you know, having to do all these workarounds to compose things or not doing it at all. And so what I'm mostly interested in right now is what's happened as those are removed in various ways, like by making it impossible to do that with money. And then also on the software side, I guess it's the opposite of making it impossible. It's actually, you know, enabling a certain type of composability. What, what, uh, what's the fire in this analogy? Like explain it for me. So like what's the fire and and so like for banking, for example, like what's spreading and then how is the fire break, (laughs) like preventing that fire and like, Yeah. Absolutely. So the fire that's spreading in the banking analogy is just like, you know, liquidity or automatic payments. So imagine I have Mm. like, you know, $100 in my account or $1,000, whatever. And I and some kid or even me wants to program something that, you know, scrapes my screen, logs in automatically for me to my bank, uh, clicks through all the stuff to send like, uh, you know, payments to people when my bills are due or pay my credit cards when they're due. Um, You know, that's actually not technically very hard, but at tons of different points in there, both technically and then probably with the bank system uh, flagging, uh, flagging stuff at some point, Um, you won't be able to do that. And so that's what I mean by a fire break. There's all these places where you almost could make a smooth system that like a a good engineer could automate, but that gets like gets stopped and that gets blocked. And we could find, you know, countless examples of this, but I think, you know, just sending bank wires is a really easy one to understand. I don't think everyone's intuition is that if you try to just send, you know, automate a thing to send bank wires every month or something, you're going to pretty quickly get stopped with the bank wanting to do some compliance or checking, you know, your automation on this or looking at it for fraud or something. Yeah, it's interesting. There's either like, it's either built in as a feature 
automatically schedule your payments or you just can't do it and you're still doing incredibly manual processes like why why haven't banks just allowed people to build software that like yeah scrapes like that why why are there fire breaks there like what's the reason for a bank to stop that because they want to control everything right there's the <laughs> less flexibility that you have in the way that your money is managed and moved around the more places that they can make you dependent on them and able to extract uh, marginal value, right? Like there is the reason ATM fees, you know, they're just high enough to uh, annoy us, but not high enough to keep us from withdrawing money. And if you don't have any other options, if every single thing you want to do, you have to turn to them. That's, you know, dollars add up. I think that's partly it. And that definitely goes for those. Although the thing about ATM fees and the example I was talking about, they, they could still charge sort of any amount of money in in the programmable world I was talking about. I think in this case, it's probably there's probably some sort of law about like anything that gives the possibility for regulation will get regulated. And I think because the fact that banks have this just enormous surface of regulatability means that they will get regulated on those points. And a lot of what they have to do for compliance or sending money or checks there is actually like, you know, a government imposed regulation. And then you, of course, you combine that with their own crappy tendencies and the fact that even sometimes they're the ones who want that regulation and you get like that state of affairs. I don't want to stay on just banking too long because I think there's everything related to I don't, what I would call, what I've called recently on Twitter, like bad digital. So everything that's like SaaS, Microsoft Word, Excel, and what I think, what I mean to say bad digital, I mean like sort of the bad metaverse that all white collar workers live in that consists of putting all those pieces together. Yeah, I think that this is a point that's really hit home for me recently, both in um, your tweets and in the conversation I had with our friend Hawkwine Tipwex in the Hanging Out with Ukbar series is that we're already in the metaverse. We're already in the network state. You can't hide from it anymore. And like the problem is we're just <laughs> having a bad time there. Like the we're existing in a half version of this future and it's it's more dissatisfying than either the the one we're hoping to create or the one that has come before. Yeah, the sort of pessimistic side of me looks at that and we're like, well, if I make white color work more efficient, that kind of sucks because, you know, I'm just there to collect a paycheck anyway. Like when I worked for Megacorps, it was just everyone was just there to collect a paycheck. No one was motivated. So there's also this interesting question of like, what would you do if you had more time, right? And from white color, it's not that fascinating. Yeah, but I, I, I'm, I'm pro everyone uh, being there to collect a paycheck and not being motivated. But we, we had this whole, this whole argument about work. But, uh, you know, what, work isn't the only way to, to create meaning here, you know? That was, like, that was an interesting point, too, because we had, we had that tweet, right, about, like, the future state and, like, are we going to be retired? What are we going to spend our time on on Twitter when I kind of posted out, like, the Chad network ager who, like, could retire because they have the money to, but decides to kind of build business? Um, I kind of thought of that, and I was thinking, like, one issue is just, like, okay, if you make white-collar work more efficient, if you start actually having a good software experience, a good digital we're not actually interested in that work. But if you make it easy to, say, do what Justin Murphy does, then it's like, oh, I can start creating, I can start actually doing my passion. And that seems really interesting. I think we should absolutely talk about the aspects of 
how desirable is the world we're going to and what does it do. But what I was really trying to get at is just sort of set this baseline of there's a lot of untapped sort of energy here, right? And so when we say, whenever you have something that like everyone does, but it's really sort of crunchingly bad or inefficient or painful, uh, there's off, you know, that's often showing you there's an opportunity to change something about it. And so I think that on the finance side, we've sort of everyone in crypto has beaten over the head how that can happen. You know, for me, it's even getting more interesting. Everything related to, I guess I would say, social graphs, SaaS, and productivity tools. Like everything we use to manage, you know, who we know, how we know them, what types of like, you know, interactions we can have with them. You know, this even touches money. Um, how we create things with them. Everything around that I think is so bad right now that I'm very, very bullish that when you combine that with money, you unlock a very, very large economy. And then at that point, I think we need to start getting into the issues of do we actually want to be in that world? Um, but I think first it's just like important to establish that like there is a first a world to get to. Yeah, I was wondering if you could give like a specific example of what you're talking about, because I think this all sounds really interesting, but it's sometimes hard to picture exactly what that looks like abstractly. Sure. Which which part exactly? Because it helps me to you know give you the right example. When we were talking about um, all these things that aren't working, SaaS and social AI and graphs, like what does it look like when you combine those with money, and why is that an improvement? I think that the first place to start is when you look at what a like even what a company is. And what it's doing, it's a lot of people who are working together for a goal. They get paid, you know, they get paid. They have to pay other people. You have a lot, you know, a lot of different aspects there. And so it's obvious how, you know, putting money in there does things. But then I think even when you talk about inserting money into the context of a creator's relationship with their community or even letting a creator have smaller scale relationships with like, you know, programmers who want to build things for them things on these lines. I think there's this like just big unlocking that comes when it's not quite financializing it because I think that's sort of the, the dystopian view, but just like lowering the barrier to being like, you know, hey, I'm a, I'm a creator. I want someone to make something for me to help my service. Then that person makes it. Then the creator in turn can get paid more easily by, you know, their community. And this very quickly jumps from being, from using the word creator to being sort of entrepreneurs, you know, make, like making products. Yeah, I think Justin Murphy kind of hit on this in social AI. It was really interesting where he talked about Reddit, right? Where it's Reddit has all this community energy, but it doesn't have a money. And so the community energy just sort of dissipates over time. There's no way to channel it. And then you have Ethereum, which is like entirely, you know, most people are using it for monetary purposes, but don't have any sort of real strong social graph or community. So kind of walk me through that. Like how, like, do you think Reddit would change? Would, it, would we get a new app? Um, or would it just Reddit would get way better if you tie in money? Let me back up actually to something you were saying there, because I think it gives a really good framework that I'll probably steal for a long time, which is uh, dissipation of energy. And I think there's monetary energy that dissipates, and there's also sort of coordination or like social energy that dissipates. And so on the Ethereum side, money works decently well, but and in terms of like trading it, spending it, uh, you know, buying NFTs with it, swapping tokens. But then as soon as 
it has to interact with anything social to like build communities, do stuff with DAOs, um, you know, richer social protocols, like think these kinds of types of creator things we've talked about. Then the energy dissipates instantly because there's just so much friction there. And so a lot of stuff you would want doesn't happen. And on the, on the same side, if you go to your Reddit example, I think it's very easy there to see how you have lots of people producing ideas. And usually when people produce lots of ideas, uh, some fraction of them really want to act on those ideas, either in the real world or less, you know, in the physical or digital world. I think it almost doesn't matter, but they want to, you know, they're all talking about some interest they have. Someone wants to, you know, do something that's more time, you know, more time involved. They're all fans of a sport. And one of them wants to start like, you know, making highlight clips and people can, you know, easily crowdfund that or what have you. Um, there, you know, someone is, people are really like what someone's doing in terms of uh, writing analysis of some fantasy novel they like. They can have, you know, someone go in depth there or make like, you know, a community that rewards people for doing that better. And I think that and if you get into more, you know, technical topics, it's really obvious. We can't do that with, like, what are the options now? Like, why can't we do that with like a credit card or... I don't know. Why does that get stopped? Why do we need Ethereum? For, why do we need programmable money for that to unlock the community? Um, have you ever tried? I mean, think it, think it through. You're in the community. You're on Reddit. You want to do something for people uh, that like involves that. So the first thing is you're absolutely going to have to go off platform. So if you want to make these like, you know, there, there are plenty of, you know, Reddit communities for sports or something where someone will do uh, highlight clips, but they're going to have to go on Patreon. Unless they want to program their own site, mm -hmm. uh, then you lose part of energy because you're exactly you're moving communities you're, and you lose. You're dissipating a lot of You're that. dissipating yeah. energy. Yeah, and these are. It's not that these are microtransactions. It's just that like just anything at all is like once you dissipate that by one or two steps, it's mostly gone, and it also doesn't flow back into the original context. So is the promise of this really like built on composability? It's the idea that you can now potentially with some, with some system like Urbit, potentially integrate payments into any system you want, like instantly without having to create these extra steps? Yeah, getting rid of extra steps and then getting a using that composability to create a compounding where the people then stay in that loop. They can add extra tools to that loop that they need and make it work with other parts of their data. Um, you could imagine, for example, something I'm getting really, really obsessed with right now is wanting to have a strong social graph protocol on Urbit, which is just very, very much a way of just encoding um, how I know Bitchell and or even other relationships we have, like we're both part of some company and the company says it's a big missing thing right now. And it's missing because that's what you need in order to start getting composability and start letting computers do some of the computer work as opposed to you kind of manually holding in your head, which, you know, which sites to go to or what have you. And what does that look like on Urbit, for example? Like, because one use case I discussed with the foundation is just like, it's hard to pair up people for jobs right now. It's all word of mouth. And sort of like, I don't really know the network. I don't know the social graph. It's all in my head, but it's not programmable because it's, there's no metadata that I can, you know, for example, be like, oh, these people are looking for these jobs or they have these skills. So what does that look like on Urbit? Sure. Let me start with the end state of what it might look like, which I'm less sure about, and then go back to the, um, you know, how you might make that happen, which I'm more sure about. 
Um, so, be, so in terms of what it might look like, it would almost feel like if Twitter was linked to a CRM, was linked to like messaging and groups. So like someone says something interesting on Twitter, you instantly like create like a connection to them and are in a group with them that you were already in with other people. And now these other um, sort of investors or entrepreneurs are vetting them, maybe at a much smaller scale than VC type capital. Um, you know, things like, things like that where it's sort of every, all, everything flows smoothly. And then even for collecting their initial funding, maybe for some very small prototype or proof of concept, which might just be in the hundreds or thousands of dollars, that's also enabled in there. That would be, you know, on the front end, how I could imagine that looking. And on the back end, what you need in order to make that happen is... Uh, a really, really strong, well-thought-out social graph protocol, which makes it possible to encode not just that Tim knows Nilrun, uh, but, you know, maybe that this company or this group knows that Tim knows Nilrun. And so, like, and that has meaning for their, for their application. And so once I add a connection from me to you, you're automatically in that group with a certain relationship to that group, right? And you, you can take this further and it's actually... This is exactly what, yeah, this is exactly what a lot of people have been telling me on Urban. I was like, oh man, I wish I had this thing. Okay, so, so basically a social protocol graph. Notably yeah. on Urbit right now, when people have dissatisfactions with how it works, uh, or even with Twitter or Facebook or things, it's because the social graph programmability is really low. So people right now on Urbit just use groups as this kind of crappy duct tape form of social graph. And this is what they're really reaching for. And the rest of the graph connections, they actually hold in their heads. This is why whenever people tell me like, oh, no, it's great on Urbit. You have reputation. You have like a permanent identity. You know who they are. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's humans solving computer problems by holding the reputations <laughs> in their head. What you really want is like ways to encode that so that then your programs can expose it in ways that let you relate to the people without having to hold, you know, the graph in your head so much. So what you said, Tim, look, about the way that all of this compounds is really interesting to me because I think it leads into what you've called a software explosion where this sort of composability and integration of multiple parts into each other will not only enable like a single new app that makes that improves our workflow, but this will lead to a new efficiency that leads to more apps that create more apps that like an actual exponential uh, explosion in the types of products that we can make and use. I wonder whether we're already seeing that. Like one way you can think of it is that when I started heavily on Urbit, which was May 2020, all you could really do was chat and put stuff into groups. And from there, I worked a lot on getting people to make it easier for them to program the system. And so that was another form of compounding where they were getting incrementally more comfortable, but they weren't yet producing stuff. And then from there, you know, I helped people uh, with people started Ookbar and we got stuff going there. And now I think for the type of social graph protocol I was talking about, that's sort of, I'm kind of throwing that out into the ether and developers can pick it up and I'll probably try to push them in that direction. But you actually need uh, Ookbar working well in order to do that. And that's the kind of like sort of explosion I'm talking about where the things that happened before make it progressively easier to do new things as the need arises and also makes the needs happen. Yeah, I think Urbit is a great example. We've seen this just unbelievable ramp up in activity and development in the last year. But I'm curious if you think that this 
is going to occur in the world beyond Urbit, or is something like the Urbit Ukbar combination necessary to even see this software explosion? I'm such a maxi right now. Like, I think people can tell from an Urbit maxi, that is. I think people can tell from my Twitter posting, like, how much I, how bullish I am on ETH as, like, a part of this. And, you know, Ukbar is built on ETH. And so that's, you know, those, these are all important parts, but I, I've started to more and more feel like this, to get this kind of programmability and unlocking, we should just come out of the closet and just be really proud about You're Urbit. Finally. Like, just, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm like just incredibly bullish about where this is going and our ability to course correct as stuff happens, but also like kind of like will things into reality. Like this is what we're talking about. Like the idea that I can just talk about making this type of protocol and we can actually see a realistic path to the developers coming who want to do that and the base layer there for them to, for it to be on. And we're not talking crazy. I think people forget how depressed the like, what I'll, I'll just call it the SaaS world from now on, or maybe the bad digital world is. It's like all these people building incremental like siloed projects and all they can really get excited about is AI because like that's the only thing that they think can break them out of that local maximum where like you pretty much know what programming is going to be. And SaaS, like, you know, it, it can make you money, but it's got to be the most depressing thing in the world to work on because it just is purely like extractive and just depresses the hell out of everyone who has to use it. So I don't know, you can, you can <laughs> extract, extract value, but it's just got to be such a bummer. I think it's probably a bummer after a, like five years of being in it. I think for people who are first in it, it feels kind of cool. Like it feels like you're making software that makes someone's life easier. I mean, I know people who are, you know, that you get to charge uh, as BMW for a heated seat subscription. Exactly. It's like, it's amazing. Yeah, like you, you're just you like, get to, uh, model. you get to build like the, another tool that fits into a stack of 10 different tools to do like one business process. It's like, wow, and great I, job. I, you're, I you're seriously, I seriously will like encounter these people. And I, like, you're saying it in like the dystopian negative way, but for them, it's like really exciting and they can never wait to show me like literally the like 15 tools they've like stitched together that make up their current productivity stack and even when you're saying Mitchell that uh oh crap you know they're just giving me like another subscription to do I think you from their perspective it feels awesome because not only am I making a tool that like in my mind you know makes people's lives a little bit better they're willing to pay me for it and I'm getting traction in that way and it all it's all these like you know actions that and that's why I said they get depressed after maybe five years because you like realize that you're just sort of forever trapped in this kind of Sisyphean like bad digital metaverse but in, in the initial stages it's it, it's rewarding this is one of the great uh you know, evils here is that we, we've conflated anything that people are willing to pay you for is good. And if people are willing to pay you for it, you think, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing good in the world, right? But that we've seen so much, um, I don't know, cynical crypto projects that are able to masquerade as something. It was like, look, everyone's so interested. Everyone's willing to give me their money. Look at, look at what I'm doing. And like, how, how exactly bullish should I be? You know, the Bitcoin maxis, they were like, okay, we're going to replace gold. It's going to be at least 10 trillion. So I see Bitcoin at like 
500,000. Like, how bullish should I be, Tim Luck, on this future? Are we talking, like, 5 trillion or, like, how big is this economy we're on? How big is it, Tim? Finally, tell us, how how big is it? How big is the 10? How big is it? I think under Lord Vitalik's tent, there's room for most of the most of the world. I was like tweeting to ETH Maxis the other day that they were kind of like, I don't know what's an acceptable word I can use on the podcast, but like they were kind of like wussing out on market cap because they're like, oh yeah, we think like it will go to like you know really twenty or thirty k, which whatever you know whatever that is like you know two or three trillion, and I was like, say what you want about the Bitcoin Maxis, but at least they had the balls to. To be like, you know what? Gold is our base case. Like, we're hitting 10 trillion for sure, and then we'll eat like everything else. And so, I think that there's a couple components of this. I think there's the money side, which I'm just insanely bullish on. And I think that if ETH succeeds, as I think it will, I think it goes right onto that Bitcoin maxi track where you talk in the you know tens of trillions of dollars, maybe in a shorter time frame than people think, like 10 years. Um, but then like this whole other part, like redoing all of like software to not be bad, but also like unlocking human creativity, productivity, like making the digital world work well, uh, man, I, that's, I, I, I want to get some guests on here who think in terms of these market sizing things so that I don't go too crazy. We're talking like a hundred trillion. I guess. I mean, what, what have I, what have I said when I say these things? I usually say like the whole thing. If you wrap up the money with the software, like something like two to five hundred trillion in today's dollars. But I'm, I'm a massive mm. bulltard. And that goes into ETH or Urbit or in some proportion. In, 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 into the that... so okay, so it would go. I would, I would guess in that. Let's say we're at like talking like three hundred trillion dollars. This give is me just the like financial ridiculous. advice. Just give me the financial <laughs> advice. <laughs> exactly. This is, I want to do a buy pod sometime ETH, where you're right? just like buy ETH, buy Urbis stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say like you know, buy ETH, get some Urbit address space exposure, and then the, the following is financial advice: like invest your life in sort of being around these communities and doing things for them and getting the energy because I think this is. A rocket ship without going, you know, too much further on market sizing. I do think that it would break down into money taking up a big chunk, then a lot of like additional financial assets on top of that that would happen. But then there's also this sort of completely untapped space of applications that will be on there making money and communities and creators. And that's a very large chunk of what I just, you know, what I just mentioned. I am interested in some of these ideas you've talked about, the communities, creators, also culture and art and what begins to happen as we remove some of these barriers and streamline a bunch of processes that are really frustrating right now. What happens when, you know, all this capital assets workflow is, is moved online? Like how, how does, what are people doing with their extra time? What are people doing now that they couldn't before beyond just making money or working better? Like, does this really change our experience as, as livers, as human beings? Hmm. I'm a little, I have to be, this, uh, this is a topic where I have to be a little bit careful because I'm pretty aware of the history in, you know, the early 20th century and late uh, 19th of people predicting, you know, the end of work through increased productivity. And for a variety of reasons that didn't happen. And so I'm not sure yet if I'm ready to say, like, you know, sort of, you know, you won't have a job or something or, or something like that, or that you won't you won't be working at all. That's you're saying you're going to fire me. 
Right, you you will have all of the free time that you like that you want. Like you don't you don't have to worry about leisure anymore. As long as you can like find enough bugs to eat and like a sleeping you know a capsule hotel to sleep in, like you're gonna be fine. Um, yeah, yeah, like uh, I I think the part okay the part that I would be more comfortable saying at least and then extrapolating from there is that. I think the work, like the work people do, will probably be better because it's hard for it to get worse, uh, especially for white collar people. Because like the bad digital metaverse is so bad, like it's just this the hellscape of Excel, Word, and SAS. Like at least if your kind of tools are streamlined and getting out of the way, and you're at least like interacting with the people who you interact with and doing stuff with them, I think that's a big win. I think there would be a lot more room for people to be creators in a lot of different senses, both of entrepreneurial things, small business ideas, as well as what we think of as content. I think those would like also explode. I think programmers would feel a lot more efficacy because they'll be able to really make a difference in things because like the foundation will be a lot stronger and you also have access to more. It does make a difference to have more money in there because you can, you know, hit like very sort of things that are very impactful to people uh, in very big ways. Um, but I think also part of what you're getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you're kind of asking me like a little bit, how far does this go in this like di sort of digital utopia I'm talking about or where stuff, this software explosion and where, you know, where does it stop and which parts of your life kind of, you know, do remain outside of that or undigitized or something like that. Is that a, is that a fair like summary of where you might have wanted to go with this? Yeah, Tim, look, that's exactly right. I'm wondering how far does this go and f how does it look differently for different types of people? It's really easy for me to conceptualize how a white collar worker um, or a tech worker has in many ways a, a very different life. But does the world look different for a welder, for you know someone in customer service or the service industry? Like where are these lines drawn? And I guess by extension that like what cannot be moved to software? Where are the new barriers? I'm a little bit hesitant to say how it goes to people, like people's lives who are in, who are sort of outside this metaverse to some degree. My suspicion would be that we stay, that there a lot of their lives does stay somewhat the same, possibly, you know, depending on the circumstance, in better economic conditions, because the thing they do is still needed, but like the, like the area is doing better because of the additional productivity. And, you know, there'll, there'll be some, there'll be some like, you know, social apps they use or stuff like stuff like that. Um, but I don't know that, you know, a lot of it would look that different in their case, which honestly might be a good thing. Like ideally, maybe you just have like some of the things that have gotten kind of crappy in entertainment and social networks, maybe, you know, maybe improve some, that's sort of a different topic. In terms of how far it goes, I think there's a very clear stopping point. And that stopping point is where there's something sensory or interpersonal, usually related to senses, that you can't replicate uh, in, in the digital realm. So what bad digital and the white collar metaverse show is that there is a lot that you can replicate in the digital realm in terms of business processes, uh, you know, sort of client interactions, different like, you know, data workflows. But there's also a lot of things that are really hard to put in there. And so I'm even hesitant when we talk about, you know, art 
to predict that like a ton of it would go to a virtual reality metaverse as opposed to still, you know, still being physical. I think, uh, you know, Nil runs talked before about the backlash that we're, you know, seeing against uh, dating apps in some ways where maybe what you want to do is something like, or well, not what you want to do, but where the solutions might evolve is people using digital more to organize IRL activities and kind of just pushing the digital one layer back and just, and being like, you know, clearly like the efficiency wins and, you know, the sort of creating a virtual city wins are very big, but we want to keep some, we don't want to just put the entire interaction up until where you're having, you know, drinks in a bar for the first time online. Maybe we want to put a little bit of that structure offline. And then, you know, things like recreation, I think are very likely to stay extra, like extremely physical. I would kind of hope they even go more that way. Like, I don't think everyone's going to be playing esports. I think there'll be like a lot, like a lot of room for, you know, touching grass or whatever, like atom based substances of your choice. Um, so yeah, I think that's for me, that's where I'm guessing the clear stopping point is, is sensory stuff that's hard to replicate and social experiences where, you just you lose something by putting too much of their infrastructure online, even though you might want to put, like for dating, for example, more of the organizing social activities infrastructure online than we have right now. We saw some of the limits of moving social online, at least in this current system, during COVID, right? Like at first, mm-hmm. everyone was doing these little virtual hangouts, and there was a weird explosion of sort of hangout services. I remember early on going to like a quote-unquote digital party that had a floor plan of some shitty New York apartment and you can move your avatar to to the kitchen. (laughs) And when your avatar like, you know, showed up near another avatar, then you, you got to talk to them or something like that. And it, uh, you know, it was, it was funny for about, you know, two weeks. And then all of a sudden everyone was like, Oh yeah, this fucking blows. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We had like, we had attempted trivia online. So I used to do trivia back in the normie days in Boston. And we like tried to bring that, uh, all online during COVID. I was just like, all right, this is really, really gay. And I'm just going to like, uh, find IRL interaction again. And so that was actually a big motivator to like move out of Boston was just like, uh, putting all social interactions online, what felt terrible. And for some reason, Bostonians like really wanted to force that and try it. Cause you're in Boston. What are you, you going to do? Yeah, get out of Boston. Yeah. It's, yeah. I do miss like, okay, like going to like, you know, a couple Celtics games each year courtside, like turning uh, digital mm-hmm. wealth into like sensory experiences. That's about, that's about it. Not much I, else. I miss having, uh, I miss having racisms yelled at me at Sligo for not being visibly Irish enough. <laughs> <laughs> I can't actually think of anything I miss right now about Boston. So yeah, I guess that says it all. Well, so when you guys are talking about these experiences, I think we're getting very clearly into realms where people are not satisfied by the digital alternative. And one problem with the way that the digital sort of bad metaverse is organized right now is that it doesn't enable, it's, it's, it's not good enough digitally to then make the offline part good. To be, to be more concrete, what most people who are aged like you know 20 to 40 really want is they want to be forever in like college or where sort of you know their first job environment was. Yes. Like they, they, yes. Right. It doesn't mean they want to live in New York City or be going to college in you know X college again, but they want 
this backend infrastructure to exist that puts them in contact with like sort of somewhat serendipitously or through activities or what have you um, with people that they, you know, where, where things can happen on a variety of dimensions. And also, you know, maybe where, where often there is something productive going on and the people are working hard in some way academically or in their job, but that's there. And I think that's where digital infrastructure is letting us down a lot is where we're in this in-between phase where people can't get those experiences without being in those cities. And then often when they are, it doesn't work. Um, but the digital thing can't replace it. So this is where I'm very passionate about fixing. I think serendipity is a really interesting word there because I hadn't put my finger on it, but I do think that is what's missing from so many digital social experiences is a feeling of things being planned, forced, artificial, and therefore scheduled. Yeah, yeah, yeah losing I'm, losing some of the magic, you know that that is like things not being smooth. I know I there's like a a I danger always, of everything becoming like featureless. I don't always say good things about the bird site, uh, but actually that's one thing I do like about it digitally. It actually does sometimes create serendipity in the form of who interacts with me, what they say, you know, potentially, you know, having access to like either, you know, people you respect, you know, talking about um, it. So I'm saying like good things about good things about interactions on Twitter and things that can happen there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's quite interesting. You know, this idea of like, you know, having hubs in cities, which I think is really key. It's just like, okay, there's a spot where you could go, like a social club where you can hang out, co-work, and you don't have to like plan every interaction. You don't have to say, I'm going to have a meeting with you from 12 to 1 and then next set of meetings. And like, there's just sort of like a, like I've noticed that with IRL where it's like, okay, we're going to coordinate like where we'll be. But then after that, um, kind of let it be serendipitous. I think right now people are sleeping on the possibility of digital to replace the infrastructural part of cities while leaving those physical serendipitous or even online serendipitous reactions uh, intact. And so that's where I think I've already seen proofs of concept with it. And in the early COVID versions of Urbit, it did a really good job of like being a city in some ways in the right groups. And mm. now I'm getting kind of obsessed with how far away we are from needing to build stuff to really make that a reality. And then of course, like instill the patterns in people where they, where they are down to make those IRL, you know, moves or being in places to let, to let the stuff happen. But I, I just think, I think it can be done and, and all of this fits together because giving people economic opportunities in these more like digital networks then enables you to uh, have more flexibility in how you set up uh, the IRL stuff. There's just a, this whole untapped design space of engineering that's all geared around, you know, recreating college or your first job. Yeah, it also gives you a shared purpose. Like in college, part of it's like, oh, we're studying together. We're taking the same courses. Now with the digital economy, it's like, well, we're doing the same, uh, you know, NFTs, the same DeFi projects. So it gives a shared purpose there. I think it's shared purpose and then also having contact with other groups that have their own purposes and having, you know, having those interact. There's, 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 a, lot, there's a lot to explore there. But I think we're getting close. I think this is like a pretty comprehensive answer to where I expect it to go and also like, you know, where I expect digital to retreat from where I think it's, you know, not the best. 
So to sum up, like, we still hang out in our IRL, but, like, we're not, but our tools for doing that get way better. We're not replacing all art with NFTs. Um, maybe, like, status symbols might be, maybe, like, a membership into a club is an NFT, but not the Mona Lisa. Is that right? Is that kind of how you see things? Yeah, I actually, so I was reading a pretty good article today by a guy I hope to have on the show at some point, uh, like Bern Hobart, and he was just describing uh, Ferra- mm. like sort of Ferrari production and how it all works. And not, not to go full like Michael Saylor here in terms of analogies, <laughs> yeah. but, but where, I, where I, no, my, I actually do have a point here, which is that if, I mean, the Mona Lisa is a lot more expensive than a, than a Ferrari, but the point is that what goes into Ferrari production is a lot less about just the raw brand and much more about really creating this visceral feel of speed and like everything about it when you touch it, having that. And I think that's in contrast to other expensive, but not, you know, as expensive cars, let's say Porsches, which I actually don't think currently give that as much and are more about somewhat more about the status symbol. And so one place that I would expect this to go, and you, you can scale it down a lot, um, but would sort of be like Ferraris and Toyotas, but fewer Porsches. So a world where people might pay or really want very high-end physical experiences or very utilitarian but nice physical experiences, but probably at the margin you're going to want less of like the pure uh, physical things that are just for status or showing a particular brand. And then I can apply the same to you know, clothes, designers, things like that. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The, I often see people driving around here in Montana in big Porsche SUVs, which I find incredibly confusing because it, it it isn't anything but a, a brand name at that point. And I think once more and more of the economy and uh, the economy tied to our social interactions has moved online, there just won't be a need to flex in this world in the same way, especially if so many of the people who you value and interact with never get to see your big, dumb, beautiful Porsche SUV aside from in your Instagram post? For me, that's like a super positive outcome because I actually love the idea of extremely high-end physical things existing and some people, you know, who have the means supporting those things going. Like, I like the fact, I don't have a Ferrari, but I like the fact that they exist or what they're, you know, what they're going for. And to me, that's like, that's very beautiful. But I think that, you know, almost everyone sort of dislikes the idea of just raw slapping a, you know, slapping a sticker on things and call and calling it that. And so it's very Russian oligarch with their yacht fetish. Yeah. I mean, look, there's, I mean, look, Russian, Russians, Ukrainians, them, they, they love the Porsche SUVs. They're all they're That's like everyone's favorite car in, uh, in like, uh, the Russosphere. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, that's actually one thing that when we talk about things I'm predicting will happen versus things I actively want to make happen, uh, this is both like I'm predicting this will happen status wise, but I also really want to move the physical world to utility on one hand and then high end artisanal, like, you know, sensory stuff on the other Mm, for the physical, for the digital, like what is accruing the reputation? Mm. Is it like an orbit galaxy? Like what, what assets do you see? Like we talked about the monetary side, right? With like ETH accrues a lot of the monetary value, but what about the sort of reputational value? Where does that accrue to? In the Urbit Maxi world that I posit, it's going to accrue to any of the permanent Urbit IDs from ranging from planets to stars to galaxies. I have a hunch that, you know, stars and galaxies will accrue extra value because of scarcity and how people 
will respond to them in that context, although it's not a complete lock. Uh, but I think just any of the IDs that are ownable, like uh, Tim Luck Miptev is, uh, is a brand. Like, I'm not going to like sit here and lie to you. Like people know, people know who it is. Like it, it means something when Tim Luck Miptev like responds to their DM or like joins the chat. So I think that's pretty obviously a place that, you know, reputation will accrue and like social graphs will like accrue around. So Tim, look, you've been talking about, for example, like the social graph um, protocol. You've been talking about just like this explosion that this fire is going to jump over the fire breaks that's going to take over. Like, what's the timing of this? How long, for example, until we have this awesome social graph protocol? How long until we get over these fire breaks and the fire just like really roars into action? Okay, so this is a framework I'll keep coming back to, which is that you're basically talking about the, right, the every this this sort of singularity and explosion of uh, software mm-hmm. happening, yeah, and that has the three. It requires you know programmable money getting out of the cage, uh, Urbit working properly, and then there being enough usable jurisdictions uh, that people can be in. And so, the timeline for money, I think I'm super bullish on the merge and like sort of it stopping the energy dissipation. Not not like um, in the sense of you know, climate change or using energy, but just in the sense of like leaking value to miners in proof of work. And I think that's going to like accrue value more rapidly than people think just because of Mm. the underlying mechanics. Uh, So I think that's on a, let's say until ETH is at a few trillion dollars market cap, like a 10X from here. I mean, that's like a one to like three year timeline, I think. Uh, then you get to, and so that's like, I think that's sufficient to have like a large economy backing this whole thing. Uh, for Urbit to be usable in that social graph way, I said uh, we need Ukbar to be here. And in order to, a lot of the social graph probably requires global consensus in order for different people to make attestations about others and, and uh, revoke them in usable ways. And then also like Urbit core to work. And so that's like, you know, we're talking in the two to three years for things to be working sm- like smoothly, but with a lot of cool prototypes along the way, which is a, we can all we can already do most of the prototypes uh, starting this fall, and so I think that'll get there. And then jurisdictions, the U.S. is still currently very usable. We'll see how long that lasts. And then you know, I'm seeing good things on the horizon from places like El Salvador pivoting more to ETH crypto, which would help. And then I think there's some other places that should make that work on a decent time frame. So to get this world, you know, I, I think within five years you'll at, le- at least be have like at least one foot firmly in it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Should we be even more bullish though? Like five years? Like, look, we've got the merge in September. We've got assembly in September. We're gonna have you know Third Earth hosting. Uh, a lot of cool stuff from Ukbar, as well as obviously Holium having an awesome experience. And then on the jurisdiction side, like, dude, we have the Dow Law meeting in September with like at the presidential level. So like, I don't know, five years. Should we be more bullish? Like, are we talking September? Like, we're in September. And for context, when he's saying the Dow Law, he means uh, the prospect of El Salvador putting a uh, law into place to sort of let Dow's domicile there and kind of make it safe legally to do a lot of you know, sweet crypto actions that we all know and love. Um, should we be more bullish? I think we should be more bullish to the degree that we can start a fire. Like, I can tell you guys where this all is going and you guys can get it, um, but enough other people have to latch on. We're on a good curve right now where it could go completely exponential. And to be honest, it somewhat has been for the last year or two inside Urban in particular. 
but we do need to like keep that exponential growth going and make sure we don't run into any of our own fire breaks in the forms of like, you know, technical difficulties uh, or loss of like conviction. Like we basically just need a lot of people to be bullish and to not settle for less. If that happens, we could push it. We could push the timelines up and I would allow it. What you're saying is uh, that all of our listeners need to follow our examples and quit their jobs and start working in the urban land. Well, I'm post-economic, but for for you guys who <laughs> yeah, think yeah, in, yeah. in these in these terms, I, like I'm that's, pre-economic. That's I'm <laughs> burying in the ground and using bugs as currency. I'm imagining Mitchell, like you know, bartering with shells with his girlfriend over Facebook Messenger. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a nice simple lifestyle. The pre-economy, the Facebook pre-economy, is a wonderful thing. <laughs> so yeah, no, I think. If you can, I, I think I'm not the only one to say this. I mean, literally, if you look at the end of other, you know, well-known pods, like on Bankless, they're like, you know, get a job in crypto. Like, try to, you know, get a job in Urbit. Like, participate in the community. Uh, you know, start, like, figuring out what you, you know, what you want to invest in in this space. Uh, well, like, with the fire analogy, it seems like you can just be an arsonist now. You start fire, setting fires in different directions, like what you're doing with Ukbar, what Bishel's doing as an influencer, um, what we're starting to do on the community side. Important influencer. Yep. Ukbar yep. is, is a clean slate, like Fed compliant program to make all fires only exist in Minecraft. Mm, mm. That's right. And I, I think we can end on that note. Go set fires, officially endorsed. And we'll see you next week.